Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. As you're having a seat, if you have your copy of God's Word with you, please open it up with me to Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to be reading all of chapter 15 today. I want to remind you that we believe here at Christ Covenant that the scriptures are inspired by God. They come to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when we read today, it's as if Jesus were speaking to us. Chapter 15 in Genesis. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I'll possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you were with us last week, um, we began the second section of this study of the book of Genesis that we're going through throughout the year. We're taking breaks in between sections. And we said some important things last week as we began looking at um, this 
Abraham journey or this Abraham narrative. Um, and as we looked at chapter 12 of Genesis last week, we said three things in particular. First, we said that what God is doing here is he's calling together a people, that God's glory would be known through a people, that God's character, that his goodness would be known on earth through a people, a people of his own possession. The second thing that we said that was very important was he said that, that God's glory, God's character would not just be known to this people, but through this people, it would be known to every family on earth. And as these people walked in God's way, as these people lived separate from the world, that through them, God and God's glory would be known to the whole world. And the last thing we said, that, that God's glory, that God's character would be known as these people, these people that God had called to himself, as these people walked out faith, the kind of faith that produces action, the, the kind of faith that produces obedience. And of course, we said that now we are those people. If you are in Christ, you are the people that God has called to himself. And as you respond to him in faith, through you and through me, God is making himself known and wants to make himself known, desires to make himself known through every, to every family on earth, all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, a lot of you have heard something like that before. You have heard that if you trust in Christ, you give your life to Christ, God calls you on this great mission, God wants to use you greatly for the sake of himself, and you've, you've followed, you've believed. But time has gone by, and if you have to be very honest tonight, you would say, you know what, I don't really feel like I'm being used greatly for God. I don't really feel like I'm a hero of the faith here. You know, as important as Matt Nolan keeps telling me my volunteer work in children's ministry is, when I'm chasing around three-year-olds and pushing carts around, I don't really feel like I'm doing this great thing for the Lord. And maybe all the while, as you're having a little doubts about the greatness that God wants to do through your life, you're, you hear things about Christianity that you don't like, and you think, Man, do I really want to be associated with, with, with that? And if you have to be very honest, maybe not, hopefully not everybody here tonight, but, but some of you here tonight, if you have to be very honest, you're having doubts about the whole industry. And if that's where you are, if you come here tonight like that, having set off maybe at another time in your life, strong in your faith and encouraged, but you come to here tonight weak, this is a great night to be here because that is exactly where we find Abraham. You can identify with Abraham in this beautiful passage so deeply. And so as we look at uh, this passage tonight, and for those of you that, you, some of you may be coming here, your, your faith is as strong as it's ever been tonight. But this is a good passage for you too. Because doubt and sorrow and fear, these are things that you will encounter in this Christian journey. And this is the kind of passage that really prepares us for that. And so I want to look at three things with you tonight, three important things. First of all, doubt. The, this idea of doubt or sorrow. I want to look at this idea of a sign or a symbol. And then lastly, I want to look at this idea of covenant that we've been talking about. Uh, so let's uh, begin with doubt. I want Christ's covenant. I, I desperately want, as we're establishing this church, we're a year and a half old now. I desperately want us to be a church where it's okay to have doubts, where it's okay to struggle with your faith a, a little bit. 
I actually think this makes us a more biblical church. If you look at uh, the Bible, all the way through, we find people who are wrestling, who are struggling. I mean, God had made this big, audacious promise to Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation. I am going to bless the whole world through you, Abraham. And here, it's been 10 years. Abraham has left what was comfortable. He went out in faith. He did this bold thing for God. And it's 10 years later, and he doesn't have a child. How is he going to be the father of a great nation? How is he going to to have all this offspring if his own wife is barren? And you know God has a habit of doing this. You remember when you're a kid and you're, uh, you're you maybe go to like a random gym or some random basketball court and you're trying to pick teams. It's a little frustrating because you don't know who's good and who's bad. It's tough to be a team captain in that situation. And you're like, well, this guy's kind of tall or that guy looks a little quick. Maybe I'll pick him. But you don't have all the data if you don't know all the players. And it's hard to pick teams in a situation like that. But here God knows everything about every person. And yet, you know who God always picks to do his bidding? You know who God always picks through whom he'll make himself known? It's, it's always like the worst guy in the gym. You know, he picked Noah, who obviously had a drinking problem, to save the whole world. He, he picked Moses, who couldn't speak to go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh to argue for the validity of this nation before Pharaoh. God picked Paul in the New Testament, who was to be a great leader among Christians, who was known at that time for murdering Christians. This is who Paul picks, and here he, this is who God picks, and here he picks Abraham to be the father of a great nation. The only problem is he isn't a father. And worse yet, Abraham's wife is barren. She can't have children. God called him when he was 75, now he's probably 85. It's not looking good. Now, in chapter 14, we didn't look at it in this study, but Abraham, go back and read the chapter, Abraham does this very heroic thing. His his nephew Lot had gotten into trouble. Abraham went into battle. He was outnumbered. He was incredibly courageous. He won the battle. He won all the spoils of this battle. And you know what Abraham did with all the spoils of victory? He didn't keep them for himself. In fact, he gave the spoils away, and he didn't just give them away. He gave them to a priest. He gave them as an offering to God. And there's a sense where we begin chapter 15 of Abraham saying, okay, when's it going to be my turn? I've obeyed you. I've walked out in faith. I've done this great thing for you, Lord. I've been heroic now. I've given the priest an offering. When's it going to be my turn? And God says to him, I'll give you a blessing. I am your shield. I am your blessing. I am your reward. Now, this is an amazing statement. I mean, it is an amazing statement. For God to say, the the almighty God of the universe, to say, I am your reward. It's an amazing statement if you just look at it at face value. But Abraham doesn't quite, he wants a little more than this. He's saying, you know, thank you, Lord, but this doesn't quite satisfy him. And if I have to be honest, I kind of get it. And you kind of get it too. You ever have that time in your life when you've, when everyone else is being blessed, right? It's, it's going great for everybody else. They, they're, 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 you know, you're in small group. Everybody's giving their testimony, and it's like, you know what? God called me to do this thing, and it's even better than God said it would be, and it's amazing, you know? Or God, you know, I, I trusted God for this, and God did this, and, and everything that you're praying for, and everything that you're obeying God with, it, it's not working out. And, you know, You tell that to your friend, and your friend says to you, well, you know, as long as you have Jesus, what else do you need? 
And, you know, that's true, right? That's true. You know, I think of the young woman, all her friends are getting engaged. You know, she's trying to be faithful, trying to honor the Lord. And everybody says, well, look, sweetheart, you, you have Jesus. You know, what else do you need? She's thinking, I need a husband. <laughs> I need someone to take care of me. I need someone to love me. This is where Abraham is. The statement is true. God is his reward. What a magnificent statement. But at this point, in this moment, it felt like a little bit of a kick in the gut. And so Abraham responds, what about the promise, God? You're my reward here. You gave me this promise. You said I was going to be the father of a great nation, and I don't even have one child. My servant Eliezer of Damascus, he's from a foreign place. He's going to be my heir, not my son. This is where Abraham is. One of the things that the church, in general, not every church, but the church in general has kind of failed at in the last 50 years is helping people to prepare for sorrow or loss or doubt. You know, we've kind of adopted, a lot of churches have adopted American marketplace mentality. We want our churches to be marketable. We want you to come to our church. Our church has this, our church has that. And so when we're at our church, we're really happy. At our church, we are always confident in the things that we believe. And that's marketable. I understand why people would want to do that, to say, hey, we, we really understand sorrow. That's not as marketable. <laughs> that's not something you put on the sign out front. But let me be straight with you. If you're going to survive this life as a believer, if you're going to survive life at all, you've got to know that you live in a fallen world. You are separated from your homeland. You're ultimately separated from God. And there will always be, no matter what is promised you, there will always be on this side of union with Christ and glory, there will always be a little sorrow in your heart. No matter how good it is, there'll always be a little loneliness. There'll always be a little fear. Even if it's on your best day, you know what I'm talking about. There's a little sorrow. And that's evidence that you live in a fallen world. That's evidence that you're far from the garden. That's evidence that you're far from your home. And unless you're prepared for that, Unless you know how to deal with that, unless you know how to live with that and and understand how God prepares you for that, that is going to create a lot of things in your life that will kill you. You have that little sorrow. Here's what happens to a lot of people. You have a little sorrow in your heart. And in order to deal with it, you develop a secret sin. You know, maybe you drink too much just to kind of numb it. Or maybe pornography. It's a secret thing. It doesn't affect your outward life, but it's just, it's there. It's a me- It gives you a little thrill. It helps you deal with the sorrow. Or it may just be bitterness that's always in your heart, and it manifests itself as, as gossip sometimes. And all of those little things, you know what they do? They actually help you feel better for a little while. But all the while, they drive you further and further away from the Lord. And, and the sorrow that you're experiencing that comes from being separated from God only continues to grow, and the cycle continues. And again, this is why I say that I desperately want Christ's covenant to be a place where you can have doubts, where you can be sad, where you can really be struggling with something and for that to be known in your community. 
and for people to not think that's strange or weird. That's one of the reasons we have a biblical counseling center. And if you use the biblical counseling center, that's not like an abnormal thing. That's just, it's one of the things that all, that all of our members should be doing at different points in their life. Weakness is normal in Christianity. It's normal in God's people. And you know, even though in the past 50 years, the church hasn't done a good job preparing you for sorrow and loneliness and weakness, the Bible actually does. You know that 65 of the 150 Psalms, so you know, almost half, 65 of the 150 Psalms are Psalms of lament. They're Psalms that were written for times of sadness times of sorrow. Another 21 are what we call imprecatory psalms. They're psalms that you pray or that you sing when you're angry. The Bible actually does a good job of preparing for all of these kinds of emotions. And that's what this chapter is. One of the reasons I love this chapter is I love how God interacts with Abraham. When Abraham has his doubt, God doesn't say to him, get out of here, Abraham. What are you talking about? What are you, what are you, how, I just told you I would be your reward. How dare you come to me and talk about an offspring? God doesn't do that. But on the other side of the coin, God, doesn't, God also doesn't let him sit in his doubt. God's always drawing him out of his doubt. He's always drawing him out of his sorrow. He's, he's pushing him. He's making him grow. He's making his faith increase. You know, some of you might have grown up in a kind of a conservative church where everyone was sure about everything all the time. And we are so confident in our faith. Y'all know that kind of church? Some of y'all grew up in a church like that. And, and, you, and if you ever express doubt, then you have weak faith and you've got a problem. And, or some of y'all may have grown up in a liberal church, right? Where everything, we doubted everything all the time. We can't be sure of anything. We can't, we can't be sure of anything. And so the, the church just kind of lives in this cynicism and doubt the Bible is neither of those. The Bible is neither of those. And this chapter is such a beautiful demonstration of that. There's grace when there's sorrow. There's grace when there's doubt. But God is always, I mean, just look at this chapter. We, we have a few more weeks with Abraham. But God is always pursuing confidence in Abraham. The Bible, even though the church hasn't prepared us for different emotions, the Bible actually prepares us for a whole host of emotions that we will face in the Christian life, including doubt. And here's the deal, guys. You got to learn this. You got to learn this because even though tonight you may be like, man, Jesus is Lord. I am ready to see him face to face. Will just got you so fired up in worship. Your, your heart may be so strong right now and praise God for that. But, but that's not the way it always is in the Christian life as we all that have walked with the Lord for a time now. You've got to be prepared for how to pursue the Lord, even in times of doubt and sorrow. So the second thing I want to look at that I love in this passage is this idea of a sign. This is one of the ways that God calls Abraham back into faith, back into belief. God says to Abraham, I am your reward. And Abraham says, well, really? What about the offspring? Eliezer is my offspring, not my son. I've been obeying you for 10 years. My wife is barren. And you know what God says to him? I love this. He says, let's go outside, Abraham. Let's go outside. And he takes him outside. And in this beautiful, gentle way, but assuring way and pursuing way, God says, look at the stars, Abraham. Look at those stars. Now, this was the ancient Near East. This is in Atlanta. This is pre-Thomas Edison, right? There's a million stars in the sky. And Abraham looks up and God says, this is what I'm doing through you. It may seem small now, it may seem like nothing now, but just look up, Abraham, and be assured and be reminded that 
I created all these stars and I'm doing something just as great with you and with your offspring. And we understand this, this idea of sign or symbol that God gives to Abraham. Last week, if you were here, I said that we are a people of a story. We always understand our life within the idea of a narrative or a story. We're a people, we're a storytelling people. But the way that we tell those stories and the way that we understand stories are, are so often through signs and symbols. Signs and symbols help us to tell the story. They, they draw us into the story. We are a symbolic people. Paige and I, uh, recently we went on this little trip up to the Boston area to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. So in love, so happy. But anyways, 10 years we celebrated, uh, we went up to this, the Boston area, we had a great time together, and we did something that I don't know if Paige liked, but I really liked. We went by Plymouth Rock. I've always wanted to do it. So we go to Plymouth Rock, and yet you know, we don't know that Plymouth Rock actually has any historical significance. I learned this when I was there. The first time Plymouth Rock started carrying any sort of historical significance was in 1741, Okay. The pilgrims landed in 1620. So there's a 120-year gap, right? We don't know what happened. But 1741, there was a land dispute, and this guy said, well, my family goes down to this rock every December 21st, which is the day the pilgrims landed, to celebrate the landing of the pilgrims. And this rock became significant. Now, maybe his family was on to something. Maybe they knew this is where the pilgrims landed. Maybe they didn't. Who knows? The point is, that rock has become a symbol to us. Why did I go there? You know why I went there? Because the story of the pilgrims being so bold and coming to America and establishing this new land that now I am a recipient of is incredibly meaningful to me. And sitting there looking at that rock drew me into the story. See, we're people of story and symbols and signs draw us into the story. We love the, for example, the Statue of Liberty. It's another one of these signs that draws us into the story. It's a lady holding a torch. How does that stand for liberty? Well, it does to us, right? It draws us into the story. I watched the Apollo 11 documentary the other night. It's great, by the way. 50-year anniversary since Apollo 11, Huntsville, Alabama, basically the greatest achievement ever. We put a man on the moon. Anyway... Apollo 11, they, they go to the moon, obviously, you know the story. And the first thing that Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong do is they put a flag up. And I was watching this uh, documentary, and I was thinking to myself, it, when Betsy Ross knitted this flag together, you know, in the 1770s or whenever it was, did she ever think one day this flag is going to be on the moon? But... They, that's what they did. Why did they do it? Because it told a story. It said, look, our symbol is here. We were here first. America got to the moon before anyone else did. Anyway, you get the point. We are a people of a story, and signs and symbols help us to tell the story, help us to understand the story. And that night, what God did for Abraham is he gave him a sign. He gave him a symbol. He said, look, Abraham, this is what I'm doing through you. Now, the text says, that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. There was saving faith here. I mean, this is the text that Paul is quoting later in the book of Romans, where he talks about saving faith. The sign increased his faith. It drew him back into the story that God was telling him. But we, we also know, Blake mentioned that between 12 and 15, Abraham fails. Guess what? After 15, 
Abraham fails. The very next chapter, Abraham goes off and uh, he sleeps with his wife's maidservant. He has another child, Ishmael, not the sign of the promise. Ishmael would be a continual uh, thorn in the side of the people of uh, the promise. And so there, there's all of these issues, but I, but I have to believe that this sign was an ongoing sign for Abraham. It took it 15 more years before Isaac would come, the child of the promise. But I have to believe that often throughout that, Abraham would walk outside and he would see the stars and he would remember and say, okay, I can be faithful. I can persist. I know Sarah is barren, but I can believe. I can believe. This, the sign actually strengthened his faith. And this is something that God has given to us too. I want to be clear when I say this. Um, we're going to talk about some biblical signs that God uses to call us into his story. Um, but there's a kind of a stream of theology. When I was in college, I was involved in this great ministry, but it was, it was a little more mystical ministry. It was a ministry there wasn't a lot of theological experts in, people that loved Jesus. But they were big into kind of sign theology. And so, you know, there was a lot of times where, you know, I was trying to make a big decision and I'd be like, you know what, if the next person that walks by is wearing a green shirt, then I should ask this girl out, you know, or whatever, you know. And, and look, I, I, you know, I'll say that there have been times, I'm sure, in, in many of our lives where something bizarre has happened. You felt like it was a sign from the Lord. But, but building your life around signs like that is not safe. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is being drawn into the story of God by the signs that he actually has given us, the signs that we actually see in Scripture. So let me give you a couple of examples. One is the gathering of the church. You know what this is? This is a sign for you. This is the stars for you. And God is saying to you, as the church gathers, this here is just a small picture of what I'm doing. I am bringing people in. I am bringing a people to myself. There's a few hundred people here tonight, but what God is saying is one day this few hundred will be billions of people from every tribe and every nation that I am bringing together that will be around my throne. And as we worship and as we sing and as we gather tonight, we are reminding one another, we're bringing one another back into God's great story of this great gathering of the saints. You know, another sign that we see, that we know about, is, is just simply the Word of God. The Word of God is something that God uses. It's a sign of His grace. It's a sign that He has spoken to us, that He uses to pull us back into the story. I was getting a lunch this week with a guy, and he was telling me this wonderful story. He'd been running from God. He, ha he hadn't really walked with God for a long time, and uh, he stumbled into a church one night randomly started sitting under the preaching of God's word and just the preaching of one verse. He said, he said, I couldn't even remember the sermon. I just heard the verse. And God called me back to himself. It was a sign. It was, it was God calling him, God using this to bring him back in. You know, another sign that's very powerful is marriage. You should go to weddings. Sometimes you're like, I don't want to go to a wedding. Go to weddings. The, the wedding is a powerful sign that God has given us that demonstrates Christ in the church. And as you see a man and a woman coming together in marriage, it is a symbol, it is a sign to you of Christ and his love for the church and the union that Christ desires to have with his church. And then when you go to the reception afterwards, go to the reception afterwards. And, and if you get married, have a big reception with a band and with feasting because if you can afford it, because 
Because it's a sign. It's a sign of the great celebration that one day we are going to have when the church is finally united to our bridegroom. Another sign that God has given us is, um, is creation, as mentioned here. It's good to go outside. It's good to look at the stars. Yeah, I, I mentioned I watched the Apollo uh, 11 movie the other night, and I was just thinking about this. Those guys, the moon is 238,000 miles away. I was thinking, what is it like to travel into blackness 238,000? Like, how isolated would you feel? Mike Collins, at one point when Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong were down there, he was just, like, for a long time, was just by himself circling around the moon. I was thinking, how high is 238,000 miles? And as I was thinking about that, I wanted to walk after this. Paige uh, took the kids to Virginia, so I had like this free night where I watched the documentary and took a walk by myself, and it was amazing. Anyway, um, but I walked outside after I was just looking up, just thinking about this documentary, and I just saw, and you know what came to mind? Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the love that God has for those who fear him. And God used his creation to draw me into the story. You know, another, another sign is the cross. We need the cross. I, I, um, this week was the 75th anniversary of D-Day, probably the most important event of the 20th century. Who knows what world history would be like without the courage of the allies that day. And, you know, so many of the allies on that day were wearing around their necks crosses. Many of them probably didn't understand the gospel that the cross represented, but it was a sign for them. It was a sign that God was near to them, that God loved them. God uses these things to bring us back into his story. When we doubt, when we fear, we need these things. And I just want to say this. This is why you need to be in God's word. This is why you need to gather. This is why you need to be meditating on the creation of God and what God has given us in all these things. So, the final thing that I want to look at tonight is this idea of covenant. And what God does next is so powerful. Now, for ours, a culture like ours, it's hard for us to understand what is happening in this passage. Um, we're a culture of contracts, paper contracts. Right? So if you want to buy a house, you go to the bank to get a loan, you can't just say, hey, give me $400,000, I'm good for it. The bank will be like, well, hold on. You know, they won't just do that. You know, we'll shake hands on it. I'll look you in the eye. I'm good for it. No, they're going to say, no, we need some paperwork, right? We, we need some paperwork. And, and if you're an attorney, you know, here, you know what I'm talking about. You are the master of paperwork. And, and so, you know, you figure out, okay, how much does this guy make? Does this guy have a job? Does this gal have a job? Uh, there's a penalty if you don't pay. There's this, there's this, there's all these agreements. The bank can come and take the house if you won't pay. You have to put up this much money. There's all these things, and you sit down there, and if you ever bought a house, you sit down there and you sign, 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 you sign. You create a contract. And after that, the bank says, oh, you know what? You've signed all these things. We have a document in hand. Now you can have $400,000. We're a culture of contracts. We're a culture that writes everything down. But, but this was a culture that kind of acted everything out. It wasn't a culture of paper and contract. It was a culture where the, the contract was, was more of a drama. And that's exactly what's happening here. When God told Abraham to gather all of these animals together and to cut them in half, what he was doing is he was saying, look, we're going to make a covenant. And these animals are going to represent 
what it is if you break, if someone were to break this covenant, this is what would happen to them. It's a drama. The animals were there laid out bloody before Abraham and before God to demonstrate the consequences of covenant breaking. And so we actually see this other places in the Bible. Jeremiah 34, 18 says, the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into two pieces between its part. So that's what this is. This is God making a contract, a covenant with Abraham. He's saying, look, we, we've, I got to show you that you can trust me. My word, Abraham, is good. In fact, the word in Hebrew to make a covenant is karath ath bareth, or barith, which literally means to cut the covenant. It was, it was, it was a it was a technical word that said you're, you're cutting the covenant. You're showing the consequences of what would happen if someone were to break this covenant. And so let's look at 17 together. Watch what God does here. This is a stunning passage of scripture. It said, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the land of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So do you see what happened here? It lists all the, the regions there below. But up top, you see what happened? This smoking fire pot, this flaming torch. Now, this is not uncommon biblical language. We see these kinds of this kind of imagery to represent the presence of God. So, for example, a flame. Well, keep remember the burning bush. God shows Himself with a flame. The smoking furnace is used to describe God's wrath against Israel's enemies. God led the people of Israel through the wilderness with a pillar of smoke, or a pillar uh, and a pillar of fire. But very rarely do we actually see all four of these elements all together in one place. The other place that we see it is on Mount Sinai when God is making his covenant with Moses, the, the Mosaic covenant there. And here we see it together, smoking, fire pot, flaming, torch. And God comes down to make this covenant with Abraham. And what do we see here? This is amazing what we see here. And everywhere in ancient culture, when a covenant was made, the, and still in modern culture, the lesser party would bear the consequences, okay? When a covenant's made, it's the lesser party that gets penalized, right? So when you sign the document with the bank, right? If you don't keep the terms of who has to sign, it's you. It's you that has to bear the consequences of the thing. You're the one that has to make the payments. You're the one that's gonna lose the house. It's, why, why? You're the lesser party. The bank's got all the money. It's the lesser party always in covenants, and certainly in ancient times, the lesser party has to bear the consequences of the covenant. But watch what happens here. Who walks through the pieces of the covenant? Who walks through the pieces of the Abraham doesn't. What's so fascinating about this is the smoking fire pot and the flaming sword go through the pieces of the covenant, and Abraham just watches. Abraham never passes through. And, and this is God, if you will, saying I am taking upon myself the security of this covenant, not Abraham. All Abraham had to do was believe. 
All Abraham had to do was have faith in the surety and in the faithfulness of God. God is taking the ownership of this, not Abraham. So Abraham, it's as if God is saying, Abraham, can you trust me? Can you trust me? And if you trust me, you don't have to worry. Your offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars. Your offspring is going to inherit the land. I guarantee it. I'm willing to put on myself the terms of the contract. I'm willing to put on myself the terms of this covenant. It will be my blood if this covenant is not fulfilled. Abraham, can you trust me? And look, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, this should not be strange to you. This is what God always does in pursuit of his people. It was God that made garments for Adam and Eve after their sin, who covered them. It was God that told Noah to build the ark to save Noah and his family. It was God that brought his people out of the land of Egypt It was God that went before his people in battle. It's always God coming down to his people. It's always God securing the covenant with his people. It's always God securing the covenant. And and I just want you to hear this. God is pursuing covenant relationship with you. God is pursuing covenant, sure covenant with you. You know, I say, well, well, how? Don't you see, when, when God wanted to make a covenant with us. He he didn't send down a smoking pot and a flaming sword. No, but he sent down his very son, Jesus, who came to be like us, to identify with us in every way. And Jesus fulfilled all the terms of the covenant. When Jesus came, he never stepped outside of God's will. He always obeyed the will of God. He did everything as he was supposed to. He, He obeyed the covenant of obedience before God perfectly, even though we did not even though we broke the covenant, even though we didn't obey. And Jesus took the penalty of the covenant upon himself. Jesus went through the pieces, if you will. Jesus was the lamb that was cut in half for us. And you see, because Abraham believed, because he believed, it was counted to him. But I want you to hear this. Abraham doubted again. It's not like God showed Abraham this amazing thing. And then Abraham was like, I saw the the smoking pot go through the animals. I'll never doubt you again. As I said before, the next chapter, Abraham is doubting God again. And if you look, this is, if you look through the whole Bible, I mean, Noah believed God. Noah believed God in this great way. And then what? He disobeys God. And, and, and his faith proves weak. Moses believed, but then he lost his faith and disobeyed God. The Bible is full of thousands of people who messed up. The Bible is full of countless people who were faithless, countless people who doubt and disobey and run from God. The Bible is full of all kinds of people like that and one perfect God and one faithful God The Bible is full of all kinds of faithless people and one God who is sure and who is faithful and who guarantees the covenant. And this is what God offers to you and me in Christ. The covenant, a relationship with me, a surety with me, my blessing, my promises are assured to you. How? Not through your ability to always obey, but no, through your faith. And I will guarantee it. As you look to me, I will guarantee this relationship. And I just want to ask you, what else in your life is like that? What else in your life is so sure? 
what else in your life is willing to take on the penalty of you breaking the relationship, of you breaking the terms? What, 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 what other kind of covenant do you have like that? This is God saying, I'm going to give you the house and I'm going to pay for your whole loan. What else in your life is like that? What else is just so steadfast, so sure? There's nothing like this. You know what the world says to you? The world promises you so much, but you know what? As soon as you mess up, you know what the world does? It says, get out. You're cut off. You say the wrong thing, you're out. You aren't useful, you're out. This is the way most religion is too, right? Most religion is fear-based. You better, you better do right. You better always obey or you'll get cut off. Only the God of the Bible is like this, saying, I am going to guarantee the covenant, even when you're sinning, even when you're full of doubt. But God also doesn't leave us in our sin. He doesn't leave us in our doubt. Again, as I said, look at this story of Abraham. God is always pursuing Abraham. Abraham cannot get rid of God. And if you are in Christ, God is always pursuing you. That's, that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's the, that's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of God's word. It, Jesus has been called the, the hound dog of heaven, <laughs> always sniffing out his people, always going to get his people and bring, bringing you back home. What else in your life is like this? What else in your life can you be so short of? When I was a senior in high school, I had a buddy named Chris Durst. And uh, he burned CDs. He was like, he had like the CD burner. And um, he made me a copy of this album. I remember him giving it to me. It was the album Play by Moby. And uh, I listened to it and I thought it was like super cool, you know. And I liked the album. I became a fan. And Moby uh, actually just, a lot of y'all don't know who Moby is, but he's this guy. Um, that was cool in 99. Um, but anyway, Moby just released this book. It's called, And Then It All Fell Apart. And he tells a story. It's an amazing story. Moby, he, he wrote the album play in his like one bedroom apartment. Okay. He was totally broke. He had been basically a failed musician. And he was like, I'll try one more album. He wrote this album. He recorded the album in his one bedroom apartment. And he didn't think it would do anything. He thought this was the end of his music career. And then the album sold 10 million copies. It was the highest selling like um, electronic you know, album ever. And Moby got fame and he got fortune. And, and he tells all this story and it's, it's fascinating. He said, you know, I used to love music. He, he started losing himself. And he says, I used to love music. I would make music for the beauty of the music. But then the music gave me influence and power. And then I started making the music just for influence and just for power. And then he was like, and then I, I became a slave to the market and I became a slave to the critics. And, and everyone around him that would say this, he would just try to please this person. This person. He said, I used to be so free. And then I lost myself and I realized how fragile I am. It's an amazing story. And then it all fell apart, the name of the book. But I just want to say, you'll get lost too. You're going to get lost too. If you're making covenants with the things of this world that so desperately invite you and say, make a covenant, I'll give you power, I'll give you influence, I'll give you all these things. And you can't count on those. As soon as you misstep, as soon as you step this way or that and you're not supposed to, you're out, you're gone, you're forgotten. Only this is sure. What else in your life is like this that will never let you down? that will never cut you off. 
What have you made a covenant with? What are you making covenants with? What are the terms of that covenant? And are they like this? Is the other party willing to pay your debt in the covenant? Is there such security? Is there any freedom? Or if you have to be honest, is your life scattered with covenants that terrify you, that leave you empty? That if you won't perform, if you won't live up, you're gone. Do you have anything like Abraham had? Do you have anything like this? And I just want to say to you tonight that you can, that you can. The surety, the faithfulness of God is available to us through faith in Jesus. To believe that God in Christ has so mercifully come down to be a man just like us, to pursue you, who lived a perfect life that we could not live, who died in our place. He paid the penalty of all of our sin on the cross, and he rose again in power to invite us in to a never-ending kingdom that can never be taken away from you. And if you look to him, there is surety in that. There is consistency. There is constancy in that. There is reward in that. Now, many of you do believe you believe. You believe that through Christ you've made a covenant with God. And the beauty of this service and the beauty of sitting under a cross is that all of these things serve to remind you of this covenant. But here in a few moments, we're going to do, we're going to take part in another sign, another symbol that God has given us called the Lord's Supper. And you see, on the day that, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, it was a drama of the covenant. He was signing, if you will, the covenant with his disciples. He said, this is my body. This is what's going to happen to my body. It's going to be broken. He was saying to his disciples, I am the ram. I, I am the lamb. I am the calf that's going to be cut in half for you. And he went to his disciples and he took a cup and he said, this cup is my blood. I am willing to take on the blood oath of this covenant. I am willing to take on the cost of this covenant. And he gave this to us to call us in, to call us in, to remind us of this, to do this often, to, to take part of the drama and to remind ourselves of the things that we believe and, and of God's steadfast love for us. And so if you're not a believer here tonight, if you came to, to worship with us and to, to observe what we're doing here as believers, I, I want to say to you, I'm so glad that you came. And, and you may have some questions, and you may have something that you want to think about and, and talk to a pastor about or talk to someone about. And I invite you to that. My, we have a text-to-pastor line. It's actually anonymous on the bulletin, or you can come find me uh, when, after the services. I'll, I'll be around, very easy to find. And I would love the opportunity to answer a question or to pray with you or to talk to you about the things that we've talked about tonight. But for those of you who are believers here tonight, I invite you now to go look at the stars, if you will, and to remember what God in Christ has done for you. And the reason that this, these things are dexterous, that you're, you're taking part in a drama, you're, you're taking bread, and it's meaningful. You're going to put it in your mouth and, and literally with your teeth crush this bread. And that's actually to remind you of something. It's to remind you that it's, your sin is costly. That our sin is actually costly before God, but God in Christ has, has taken on the pain of the covenant. He's taken on the terms of the covenant. But you're also going to take bread and it's going to be filling. Not that filling because it's very small, but symbolic of filling. Because Jesus is the bread of life. He is who fills us. He is who nourishes us. 
and you're going to take you're going to take wine. And and this wine again, it's it's got a bitter taste about it, to remind you that the blood was shed, the blood was shed on your behalf, so that you could come into fellowship with God, so that you could be renewed to God. Jesus has taken on the terms of the covenant, but it's also wine. It's also a sign of celebration. It's also a reminder that one day we'll be eating and drinking with Christ in his eternal kingdom, celebrating the union that we have with him, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So if you're in Christ, I invite you to come and renew this covenant, to to remind yourself of the things that we believe, to look to Christ, to believe in him, and for it to be counted to you as righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this, for what you are doing, Lord, in this story, for your faithfulness to your people, that despite our fears and sorrows and doubts, Father, you are calling us back in. And so, Father, I pray tonight that you would call us in, that you would call us in, Lord. You would strengthen our faith. You would ground us more deeply in this covenant of love, that this would be all of our hope and peace. This would be our lives, Lord, that our lives would be grounded here and not in the, in the temporary and fleeting contracts of this world, but that we would find life and rest and peace in the covenant that you've made with us through the price of the broken body and spilled blood of your son, Jesus. Father, that you would remind us of the hope of life and promise that we have in him through the power of his resurrection. Lord, do this in our hearts tonight, we pray. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.